All right, going to start out with a couple slides here, a couple pictures. First of all, I want to show us uh, our mascots. This is going to be our mascot for the study of Ecclesiastes. Uh, there's our there's our little um, logo. You'll see that hanging around every once in a while. Uh, this is our mascot. We got you know Wesley from the Princess Bride saying, "Life is pain." Anyone who says otherwise is selling something. Uh, so we're going to find out that, that Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes is a lot like this guy. So just think about um, that as we're going through. Um, since we're on the topic of The Princess Bride and what a great movie it is, I watched a, um, I watched a documentary on Andre the Giant this week, and so it made me think of this. Uh, just Andre the Giant offering great wisdom for our COVID times. He says, you be careful. People in masks cannot be trusted. Uh, so you got that side of the argument, and then you got the other side where, where Wesley says, masks are terribly comfortable. I think everyone will be wearing them in the future. So there's both sides of the COVID argument all the wisdom we meet, we need for these days in which we live, given to us by the the great movie, The Princess Bride. All right, I know you guys have all seen that before, but it was pretty fun. I thought it was pretty exciting. But life is pain, is what Wesley said, and and I think that's that's where the author of this book is really coming from. Uh, here's a quote from Florence Nightingale, who said. Were there none who were discontented with what they have, the world would never reach anything better. So there's something good about being discontented, about being upset, about being sad and disappointed. Uh, we're going to see that's the, the framework of this book. There's something good about it. Now, I am diving into this book, and we, are, we chose to study this book because of a dare, a challenge from Nathan Taylor, my good, dare I say, great friend, Nathan Taylor, one of the elders here at our church, where him and I have had many, many conversations about the book of Ecclesiastes. And he spoke about how much he loved Ecclesiastes, and I really... Uh, haven't connected with this book as much. I had never studied it in depth. I'd read it several times, but as I just read it, I was like, man, this guy's really a bummer. And this guy is really uh, kind of frustrates me uh, in in the perspective that he has. And I shared that it, to Nathan, it really didn't connect with me. And he always gave me a hard time and he challenged me to look deeper. So if you don't like this book of Ecclesiastes, uh, neither did I, and uh, welcome to the club, and you can blame Nathan that we're now going to study it. Uh, but I'm actually very, very happy and excited to share this journey with you because I've been really challenged and I've been really blessed as I have put in a, a lot of work studying this, and I, and, and I really think that God has uh, showed me uh, why I was wrong in how I was thinking, and, and I was a little bit shallow in the way that I was thinking about this book. So here's the thing, okay? Uh, this book of Ecclesiastes is actually designed to make you uncomfortable. So I wasn't really wrong in how I was feeling as I was reading it. It's designed to make you feel 
awkward. It's, it's designed to challenge and to interrogate all the things in our life, all the things we would rather not get into, um, but we find that when Jesus comes on the scene, he does the exact same thing as this book to all the things we thought were rock solid, all the things we put our hopes in. Uh, when Jesus came, he challenged every single one of those things. What, what we thought satisfied us as a human race, Jesus challenged. So uh, Solomon's job is to make you uncomfortable. So here we have a picture of, uh, this was the first selfie of Solomon on Instagram. And uh, his job is to make you uncomfortable, probably by the size of his beard. He has a great looking beard right there. But if he's not making you uncomfortable in this book, then you're probably not really listening. He is really, really good at his job in this book, at making you uh, a little uncomfortable, as well as his song, uh, the next book in the Bible, which we might have to take a look at uh, sometime soon. Uh, but since we're talking about Solomon, we got to bring up a verse first in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, where Jesus talks a little bit about Solomon. And he says this in Matthew 12, 42, the queen of the South will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. So if you don't know, Solomon uh, was David's son, the second king, well, the third king in Israel. And uh, when he was young and became king, he, the, the Lord came to him and said, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon said, give me wisdom. And so the God said, I'll give you wisdom. You'll be the wisest person that ever lived. And I'll give you riches since you didn't ask for riches and long life and all that stuff. I'll give you all that stuff too. But I'm really happy that you asked for wisdom. And so God gave Solomon wisdom. The, so much so that he was the wisest man ever that would ever live on the earth. But Jesus says here, he is greater than Solomon. Let that sink in just one moment. Jesus says he is greater than Solomon. Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus is beyond measure. He is the source of all wisdom and he is greater than the wisest man that's ever lived. And so this wisdom that Solomon's about to share with us and we're about to dive into and look at, remember that it's 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 nothing compared to the wisdom Jesus will bring. It, it's a foreshadow of what Jesus would complete. It is, uh, Solomon is wise, but Jesus is wiser. Solomon challenges the way that we perceive life. Jesus completely changes and wrecks our life in totality. He completely transforms it into a new life. Solomon is yet another foreshadow of Jesus, just like we saw in the book of Jonah that we just finished last week. So, we are so very lucky and blessed to, that we can look back at this wisdom of Solomon, but with the Holy Spirit and the completion of the Word of God, 
as our window and our perspective being able to look back at the book of Ecclesiastes. By the way, just just so you know, Ecclesiastes, the word means uh, teachings or uh, writings of the teacher. Um, so ecclesi- Ecclesias Ecclesia is, is a Greek word uh, that means, you know, the pastors. So it has to do with it has to do with the idea of uh, being taught wisdom. All right. But back to Jesus and, and how we can look back um, and how we can relate to this book of Ecclesiastes. OK, Solomon's going to present a lot of problems with life. And Jesus says, yep, all of those problems are real. But I am the solution to every single one of these problems. So if you read Ecclesiastes without Jesus, you're going to be left with an emptiness and a sorrow, but that's the design of it, okay? So don't don't feel bad about that. It's designed to help us get over here to where Jesus is the solution to all that this book reveals is wrong in this life. So you could say this book is like salt. It makes you thirst. It makes you thirsty. And everyone gets thirsty, um, and and the the reason why everyone gets thirsty is because this whole world has been cursed. <clears throat> Excuse me. Do you remember back in the Garden of Eden, there was a thirst that was pl- cursed upon man. When we sinned, God took away all that really satisfied us. We were separated from God himself. And that thirst continued generation after generation. It's a continual thirst. Um, It's this curse that we live in on this planet. It's like there's no satisfying water like like the planet of Arrakis. Nothing seems to satisfy us truly in our daily experience. And that's the heart and the main lesson of this book is how unsatisfying everything truly is. This book gives a voice to that thirst. The cry of a newborn that needs milk. The weeping of a prostitute who feels used and unloved. The pain of death and loss and struggle Possessions that break and wear out, dreams that are shattered, betrayal in relationships. All of these things are poetically expressed and given to us as the poetry of this book, helping us to have a voice when we experience these various aspects of the curse that man uh, got when we when we rebelled against God in the garden. Why is this so important for us to have a voice for these pains and these sorrows? Why? Because, listen really carefully to this, God is willing to go there with you. He's willing to go there. He pushes past where we feel comfortable, past the G rating, past the PG-13 rating, 
he gets right into the R-rated parts of our life. He's not afraid. He's not intimidated. He's not embarrassed. He's not offended. He wants to get in there because those parts of your life exist. Those parts of your life where the curse has touched our hearts deeply. Where it's burned and seared its terrible mark in our souls. God wants to go there. Where the curse has touched our hearts and the cursing is our expression of dissatisfaction. God wants to hear you. God wants to get in there with you. God loves you there, where it hurts most deeply, where you've had the most dissatisfaction. God has healing, understanding, and he has something that satisfies right there. Right there. He doesn't gloss over it. He doesn't, he doesn't want it buried. He wants the healing of your life to be full and complete and true. Real healing. And the solution and the healing and the satisfaction that God brings to the table... When you bring your rated R life, he brings Jesus. In the end, we will have Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the one who calls out our broken and empty lives. He calls them out and says, this is what it is. And then he so lovingly and graciously fills up our empty, broken, sad lives with his own. That is the complete opposite. An overflowing, abundant life. It's almost like turning water into wine. Very satisfying, full of joy. So, with all that helping us to understand what the purpose and point of this book is. Let's get started with chapter 1, verse 1. And it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Okay, so let's stop right there. This book was written by someone called the preacher, uh, in Hebrew, Koela, which is... Clearly Solomon, okay? This is David's son. Everything in this book that we learn about, that the experiences Solomon talks about, we see it in other parts of the Bible as being part of Solomon's life. So it's not really hard to realize who is is doing the writing here. But why does he go by the title of the preacher? Well, In Hebrew, this word means one who gathers people together. So, as I was thinking about this, I really think you could could translate this in English, uh, you know, teacher or, uh, you know, pastor, but you could really translate it regional manager. 
And it's kind of like he is a regional manager, you know, he manages that region of Israel, and he's kind of calling a conference room meeting, you know, conference room people, five minutes, you know, he wants to really get some stuff on his chest. And just like most famous regional managers, Solomon makes people very uncomfortable. And he takes us down a road that we, we probably would rather not travel down. Thinking about things we probably rather not consider because our lives are, are uh, it gets uncomfortable when we, when we go down this road with Solomon. But Solomon, he just doesn't care how uncomfortable he makes us, all right? And it's interesting, there's another character in this book that's very briefly at the, at the beginning maybe and then at the very end, the last chapter. It's kind of like someone who gathered all the words of this preacher, teacher, regional manager uh, kind of like one of his students, or I guess you could say an assistant to the regional manager. Uh, he he gathers all these words of Solomon together, and he he writes a little intro as well as the conclusion at the end of chapter twelve. So we'll see that he kind of takes all the wisdom of Solomon and he 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 summarizes it for us and gives us a little. Uh, the main point, I guess you could say, of why this book is in the Word of God, and then um, kind of points us to Jesus in the future. So again, Solomon is not a fun guy to listen to. He is gifted at making us uncomfortable, and this book is meant to be unsettling. Unsettling. It's there. It does that for a reason. So why does Solomon write this book? And why does God want us to read it? Because, guys, something is broken. Actually, everything in this life is broken or cursed. And he is brutally honest about it. You know, we're all going to die. You know, we're all dying and no, nothing can can stop it. Look, I made this really complicated chart for all of us to share and, and see my artistic abilities. It's a, it's a simple graph that shows 100% of people die. That's how many people are alive versus are gonna die. All of them, every single one of them, we're all gonna die. And you see, religion in name doesn't doesn't immediately fix all that is broken here and now it doesn't have all the answers there are answers but when it comes to the curse we don't have all the answers uh in this book of ecclesiastes it's just going to pose some of the questions for us we have to see ourselves this is why this book is here why god wants us to read it we have to see ourselves as humans in a broken world, broken humans in a broken world. We're not separated from the suffering and the pain and all that's wrong in this world. We are a part of it. Even if we know God, even if we honor him and, and, uh, and live for him in this world, doing good things, we have to understand that we are humans still affected by the curse today. This means that as Christians, as followers of Jesus today, we can't be fake, trite, or shallow, or sentimental, or dishonest, 
or pretentious about the pain and sufferings that are going on in this world. We need to have our eyes open. We need to be in that rated R version of the world where we know and see we can't just hide our eyes from all the bad and pain and evil of this world. We need to learn how to sit with people of this world and eat with them and yet not partake in their sin, but be there with them. And this reminds us of Job's friends who were really bad at this. Okay, they, they didn't understand uh, that religion didn't answer all of Job's questions. They thought things were really simple and that there was these general rules that religion provided to them that Job obviously did something bad and that's why he was suffering, but that's not true. There are exceptions to that rule. You know, in the book of Proverbs, we have a bunch of generalities and rules that we could live by, but Ecclesiastes, also written by Solomon, shows us the exceptions to those rules and why you can't just say that those rules always will happen because there's always exceptions to those rules. Um, you know, back to Job's friends, um, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. That's what they would say. That's what their simplistic view of religion taught them. But they were wrong. And this misunderstanding of these exceptions, this led them to be unwise, more religious than wise, and unkind, more religious than loving in their dealings with Job, their friend who was going through great suffering during his time in the book of Job. The world and all of the brokenness that it shares and all the brokenness in, in the lives around us, it, it sucks, guys. It's hard. And we need to have a kindness and a gentleness and an understanding and a wisdom when dealing, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of this world. So what then? This sad, this sad truth, when we understand the pain and the suffering and the curse that everyone is enduring in this world, it will lead us not the opposite of God. It will lead us to God. Okay? It's really actually important that we understand how bad this world is. Not by sh And this book doesn't show us his wonderful redemption. Other books do that just, just fine. But this book shows us the grimness of life without his redemption, without his life. So this book can actually be used evangelically, which means to help people come to know God by helping, them, helping us all to see how broken and pointless life is without God. So the regional manager calls a conference room meeting. He says, everybody, we got to talk about this. <clears throat> he stands up and he says, boring, boring, boring. Everything is really boring. We were meant for so much more. And I'm really frustrated and angry about it. This is true. This is so very true that everyone in the world is, is really going to kind of agree with Solomon in their hearts. They feel what Solomon is feeling at some point in their lives. 
And so this is a place where all of us can know that we kind of start here. When we think about God, when we think about life and, and our, when we start thinking, what is the meaning of life? It kind of starts right here with everybody. What is the meaning? What is the point? What is the value in life? It's almost like Solomon's like, hey, bro, life sucks. And we say, yeah, bro, sure does. You know what the worst part of life is? Death. But you know what? Jesus went to the worst part of life also. He experienced it. God went there to the most rated R part of life. He went there, he tasted it, he drank it in, and then he rose from the dead. And now he has provided that recovery of life for us. He went to the worst part of life, death, and then he, he, he got that life back. And he brought meaning and he recovered the purpose and the point of life through his resurrection. And now he offers that to all of us. So that's kind of the road that we'll walk down as we study this book that Solomon has written for us. So a, a real quick summary. This book is here to stir in us the hunger for something deeper, truer, richer, and a life that is not boring, but a life that has meaning. We are supposed to hunger for that. This book will point out many areas where we will not find that meaning. And so we're supposed to hunger and search. Where will we find that meaning? And the answer will be Jesus. This, hung, this book will take us back to Eden. Back to the world that was satisfied. Back to the world that was perfect. Back when Adam had his wife. And he was satisfied. He had his labor and he was satisfied. He had his God and he had sunrises and sunsets and he had animals. And every part of life held hands singing Kumbaya and everything was perfect. What's different now? This book will help us see what is drastically different now than it was in Eden and we will get back to that Eden, that Edenic life and promise. It's going to happen. All right, here's a quote as I came across that helps us see the purpose of this book. Uh, Ecclesiastes seems to be like one of God's ways to say to us, the world and your life are more broken than you now realize. And what God created us for or for us, is more satisfying than we believe. You're more broken than you could ever realize, but God has more promised for you than you could ever imagine. Okay, so how is Solomon going to teach us in this book? Since he's the teacher, since he's called this conference room meeting and he wants to talk about it, he's going to use three main strategies. He's going to observe things, 
He's going to just, you know, use kind of observational comedy to, to observe things like Seinfeld. He's going to grieve about things. Okay, he's going to grieve. That's one way that he's going to talk with us. And he's going to interrogate things. He's going to really, you know, interrogate life. So I want you to imagine that, it, that it's like a, um, a tour bus, okay? So Solomon, you know, he's kind of like our tour bus driver. You ever been on one of those tour buses where the driver has the little microphone and as he's driving, he's pointing out things out the windows and he's saying, look, over here is where, you know, Clint Eastwood was born in this little shack over here. And over here is where, you know, Tom Cruise, you know, joined his church of Scientology, whatever. So imagine this book is like a tour and Solomon is like our tour bus operator and he's going to use poetry. Imagine your your tour bus driver using poetry and as he makes observations about the world around you, he kind of shapes the way that you see the world as you're driving by. And in and instead of highlighting all the good things about life all the time, you you kind of get the idea that this tour bus operator uh he's being intensely honest about the terribly broken parts of life and so it's not a tour designed to make you feel good or to see what's great it's a tour designed to help you remember and know what is broken and so part of the tour he's just crying Oh, this is where we saw this. This is what used to, you know, he's just weeping and, and grieving. Part of it, he's making observations over here. You know, this part stinks over here. And and part of it, he's interrogating. And through all of it, he sprinkles in poetry. He uses poetic language. This tour bus operator is very skeptical, okay? He's not skeptical in the sense that he just... um thinks everything is bad. He's skeptical of the promise to gain anything. He's skeptical of the promise of gain of anything in this world. Okay, and that's the that's the correct way to be skeptical. And you could say he's skeptical that anything will satisfy him. He's saying nothing satisfies. You could say he believes in the law of diminishing returns that the gain goes down as you keep experiencing life. The satisfaction level goes down the more you live. He, that's how this Solomon is so skeptical. The gain with God is that we can actually enjoy the world. We can enjoy its beauty and the pleasures of this life in the way he intended it. And Solomon is going to realize that, and he's going to actually come to many points in this book where he says, you know what? You basically need to just enjoy the little things with God. And as you do that, you'll see that that sex and food and nature and, and money and, and jobs and your family, all those things can be enjoyed. If you, if, you, if you have God with you, if you're walking with the Lord, there is a true joy that man can have when God is the center of his life. 
It's a joy that can be found in all the simple things, all the little things. This joy can be recovered. So that's our that's our tour bus operator giving us this, you know. So how does this conference room meeting start? How does this tour start? Well, it starts with a bang. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Again, he's saying like boring, boring. Everything is really boring. Life is pointless. Life has lost its mojo. It's unsatisfying. It's empty. It hurts. It stings. It stinks. It sounds like an emo band wearing black skinny jeans and guy liner. You know, he's, he's singing his emo song. All right. Vanity. What does vanity mean? The word vanity, it means transient, absurd, meaningless, futile. Unacceptable, unsatisfying, all of that. If you were to throw all those words and ideas into a pot, that would give us the meaning of vanity. It means life will leave you empty. Life will leave you empty. Now, what's awesome, check this out. This word is used one time in the New Testament. In this book, it's used dozens and dozens of times. But in the New Testament, it's only used one time, and that is in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. Romans 8, 20, and 21. Look what it says. This is really amazing how this connects with us and, and will teach us. So we're going we're gonna to finish up our, our look at, at the beginning of Ecclesiastes with Highlighting this verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 20 and 21. For, creation, for the creation was subjected to futility. There's the word right there, okay? Futility. Okay, so what's he saying? Going back to creation, go back to Adam and Eve, Paul says. Back then, life was good, life was blessed, everything was working, but it was all of creation, every part of this life was subjected to futility. Okay, something happened. Not willingly, so that the creation didn't want to do this. All of life wasn't supposed to go this way, but because of him who subjected it in hope, God cursed this life and this world in hope. In hope. He did it for a reason. He made this life hopeless because of hope. Because he had a plan. Because he had a greater hope that would come and fix everything. But because of Adam and Eve's sin in the beginning of creation, at the beginning of time, God had to subject, subject the entire creation to futility, or he had to curse it. He says, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. 
God says here, says here, all of life will be fixed, just like the children of God have been fixed at this point in time. Our spiritual life is the guarantee and the promise that the whole world and all of life will be fixed by Jesus. Yes, Jesus cursed this world, but it's the only way that he could, he could take the curse that Adam and Eve earned. He took it on the cross. He swallowed it. He killed the curse. He absorbed the curse on the cross. And as he invites us to be children of God, he invites us to be adopted into his family. He gives us a new resurrected life a new standing with God that is perfect and a new satisfaction of, of being a child of God where life is meaningful again. And he gives that to his children. So every believer has that reality in their soul, in their spirit. And he says, you can now live in this world that is still subjected to this futility and it's and all of this life has this curse still but you get to be the promise of what the future holds for all of it because when solomon says vanity of vanities all is vanity that's not my reality and that's not the reality of anyone who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior. He has changed their reality. And now we are a light to this world, a promise of what this world can be and will be when Jesus fixes it all at the right time, at the perfect time. God did this to the earth, this cursing. He made it this way. He did that as a punishment for sin. It had to happen. Sin had to be dealt with. And so this book will help us to see how terrible this curse is. And it will have us crying out for newness of life. Crying out for newness of life. Check out this uh, quote from Tim Chaddock, a friend I went to Bible college with. Uh, he said, The truth is this. Our fear that life may be futile is the first step on a vital journey. This fear awakens us to our need for someone to step into the darkness and allay our fears, fix our fears. You could say that God punished the world, the whole world and all of life by making it all futile to wake us up. But God punished Jesus to raise us up. God punished all of life to wake us up, but God punished Jesus to raise us up. The best hope in the world rises out of the worst moment of hopelessness. That's why the cross, guys, remember the cross, where the worst emptiness and futility of the entire world was centered in that moment and was, was highlighted in that moment. 
a perfect life, being murdered and judged an innocent life, being punished. You could say that's the worst of the cross, of the, of the curse, excuse me. Jesus took the curse, the fullness of the curse, all of it, into his own body. And as he, was, as he died, being punished, that curse was killed as well. And now through him, we can experience a life uh, where we can have real, true joy and meaning in our life. It is so wonderful. It's such a wonderful free gift uh, that Jesus offers to us, a, a resurrected life, a fresh life that's not meaningless, it's not vanity, but it's meaningful. And as a child of God, we have purpose and, and all of that is what we are going to discover at deep, deep levels as we look through the book of Ecclesiastes. So I encourage you, spend some time with the Lord this week in brutal honesty about life and what is unsatisfying, and, and you will find that He is satisfying as you come to Him this week, as you worship Him, as you spend time uh, giving Him your heart in, in new measures of fullness and surrender. Father, we give you our lives fresh and new because you gave your life for us fully on the cross. You gave it all to us. You love us so much. You're so willing and open to hear how things hurt us and how, and how we have experienced loss and we've tasted the curse that Adam and Eve uh, first tasted. We have, uh, we have experienced it very much. And this whole world is living in it. And God, we pray that you would help us to be a, a light and we would help we would shine a light on your life and and we pray that you would encourage all those who are going through difficult times this week that you would be near to us as your promise says you always are in Jesus name we pray amen god bless you all we'll talk to you all very soon